Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jerry Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thanks so much for listening to The Sword and the Trowel today. Delighted to have you with us. We have a number of things that are going on here at Founders Ministries, not the least of which is our conference that's coming up in January, Militant and Triumphant, The Doctrine of the Church, How Desperately We Need to Recover, What It Means to Be Militant and Triumphant as God's People in God's World. You'll be preaching there. I'll be preaching. We're going to have Vody Bauckham with us, Conrad and Bayway with us, Travis Allen with us, James Coates with us. Who if, we, is, if we can get James out of the country, if we can get Canada. him, we might have yeah. to pull some uh, militancy, <laughs> some triumph to get him out of Canada down here. So uh, founders.org forward slash 2022 conference to register for that. We'd love to see you down here in January. We have just celebrated the inaugural convocation of IOPT, the Institute of Public Theology, and it was a great and glorious day. We had good friend Dr. Everett Piper with us. Uh, I've only gotten to know Dr. Piper in the last year or so, but uh, many of you already know him. He's been a guest on the Sword and Trial before. He uh, came to us from Oklahoma, where he served for 17 years as the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, and through his leadership, that university turned around and got put on the map and gained great influence in the uh, broader culture through his writings and teachings and the stands that he took publicly. And we've just had a wonderful time with him. We're grateful to have him here with us today. So Everett, thank you for joining us today for the convocation and now for the Sword and the Trial. That's my honor. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I was uh, really impressed with your talk today. Uh, You had notes and you just uh, disregarded them and decided... That's always a bad sign. uh, (laughs) Well, no, it worked out really good for us, though, because uh, I think the theme of your talk was something like grow a spine or something along those lines, right? Well, yeah, it, it, I really think, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm stretching the, uh, the scripture here a bit, uh, but Piper paraphrase. Um, I know that we're told that the hand cannot say to the eye, I have no need of thee. Well, maybe the body of Christ has an elbow. I'm not sure. <laughs> but it's, a well-placed but it should, elbow. But yeah. it should have a spine, yeah. I, I'm sure. You, you can't get any rebounds if you don't throw an elbow every now yeah, and then. Yeah, you got to box out. So I, I do think it's time for courage. And we are admonished repeatedly in Scripture to be steadfast and immovable, to be strong and courage, courageous, to always be prepared for to give a defense for the faith that lies within. And all of that implies conviction and courage and confidence to run into the storm and not away from it. Mm. And I really think that the the body of Christ would be well served to be that courageous um, that courageous face in the fa- in the in the face of a culture that's desperately looking for leaders right now. Amen. And and you've done that. You've done it under your leadership when you were at Oklahoma Wesleyan, but you've done it through the writing of books as well. And this is these are not your only books, but the last two of your books, I think, not a daycare that you wrote as a result of something that happened on your campus, and you wrote a, a letter and editorial about it, and that blew up, and so you elaborated that and just kind of principles of life, reality, and the the way the world really is not the way the world some people would think it is and you follow that up with another book then grow up life isn't safe but it's good which are just kind of uh, these are chapters built around little nuggets of wisdom just practical wisdom Mm -hmm. that maybe in earlier days were kind of taken for granted that we can't take for granted anymore so talk to us a little bit about the the books why you wrote them and uh, what what the main point of each one is well as you know not a daycare was my response to the snowflake rebellion, uh, the cancel culture. And if you fast forward six years after I wrote it, I kind of come to you today with this attitude of, I told you so. (laughs) Uh, Because in 2015, when this not a daycare story broke, 
It was the front end of cancel culture, the Snowflake Rebellion, the affirmational movement where if I don't like what you're saying, I'm going to cancel you. You shouldn't be allowed to say it if it makes me feel uncomfortable. And that's the antithesis of good education. Mm. That's the antithesis, the opposite of growing up and becoming an adult. We're told in the Proverbs that as iron sharpens iron, let one man sharpen another. Adversity is good. Cognitive dissonance is good. If there's too much comfort in life, we never mature. We never act like functional adults and human beings. We're always soft. We always expect a participation trophy rather than actually get out, get our hands dirty, do something that actually results in accomplishment, something that we've earned rather than something that's been given to us. And for the academy, the ivory tower, to buy this lie that somehow we're supposed to make our students feel comfortable rather than to confront them, that we're supposed to coddle them rather than to challenge their character. And as you know, the story that set me off on Not a Daycare was we actually had a kid at my school, the college that I was the president of, that was offended by a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, the least offensive passage in all of the Bible, and this kid is upset by it. I was incredulous, and I just said, my land, this is a university. It's not a daycare. I'm not going to make you feel comfortable. A good sermon is supposed to make you feel guilty. <laughs> That's the point, is for you to confess, not to feel good about your sins. And that kind of blew up. It went viral. And everybody from Bill O'Reilly to Glenn Beck and USA Today and Chronicle of Higher Education and Fox and & Friends, and everybody cared about that story for five minutes. In fact, one thing I don't know I've shared with you is that story, not a daycare, was cited by NBC Today as one of the top 10 news stories of 2015. How about that? And I didn't say anything other than what your dad said to you. And that is, you know, no pain, no gain. Get back on the horse. You've got to grow up and figure out how to deal with challenges in life. And if you don't, you're never going to amount to much. Mm. That's all I said. Mm. You know, Tom and I have said, uh, I think we wrote this in Strong and Courageous, uh, simply America needs a dad. It's quite apparent if you look at the chaos that has ensued, particularly over 2020, but it was ensuing before that, that uh, America does need somebody to stand up and say what these fathers from the past have said. And we're in a moment of, of crisis and tumult where people seem to be actually yearning for that. Like somebody, please come and tell me the basic truths. You indicated some of this in your message today at convocation and help some of those who are listening. What is, what opportunities are there right? in what ways are Americans, broader society hungry right now for somebody that's going to simply give them the basic truths? Well, I think your point about fatherhood and the lack thereof in our culture right now is an excellent point. We have made masculinity toxic by mm. definition in our culture. And as the result, we have a bunch of cowering men rather than courageous men. We have a bunch of followers rather than fathers. And that's not good for any culture. Um, I don't intend to be misogynistic in this next statement, but if you over-feminize anything, you're going to have a culture that elevates feelings over facts. To reverse Ben Shapiro's mantra where he constantly says the facts don't care about your feelings. Well, that's what my dad would have told me. My mom may not have said that. And I think in God's design for the family, you've got the balance of the supportive mother and the challenging father. And that balance of challenge and support, it's actually called something in human development theory. It's called cognitive dissonance. It's called the optimal balance that actually creates growth rather than stagnation. So this is in secular theory as well as it is in biblical reality. 
The bottom line in what you just said is we need to recover the high ground of being leaders, fathers, courageous, confident, where we're mentoring and molding our sons and our daughters to follow our lead rather than trying to pretend like we're their best friend all the time. The best coach I ever had was a coach that looked me in the eye and said, I'm not your friend. I'm your coach. And there's a difference. And I learned a lot from that man. You know, I think back on some of those uh, men in my life growing up, coaches primarily, and they'd be arrested uh, today. <laughs> were they to do the things that they did back then that were just normal and they weren't abusive? Was but, Bobby Knight your coach? <laughs> <laughs> One of them made Bobby look like a, a oh, kindergarten teacher. Yeah. Right? No, I mean, they were just, but they, they were trying to communicate to us as men. And I, I appreciate it the older I get. I mean, you know, the abuse is never right. But these guys weren't abusive, but they were definitely going to get your attention and remind us that we were boys, we weren't girls. And there's a difference. It seems like the many of the people who have we find in our leadership, particularly throughout the government, but even in other forms of leadership, have lost some of what those men from a bygone era had, which was they were in a position of leadership and they were willing to be uh, tough. They were willing to be disciplinarians, but they were also willing to sacrifice themselves for the That's betterment right. of the people under their care. So there was this responsibility that flowed from the top down. It was like, well, the reason that we're preaching First Corinthians 13 to you is because we love you. And so the thing that you're objecting to is love and demonstrating that through genuine sacrifice. You know, Christ did that for us, but that does seem to be missing. I think it's making a lot of people um, that are under such leadership question the very idea of leadership, question the very idea of fatherhood, the question, the, the very idea of hierarchy. And so it is a call to those. I mean, what happens, those men and those leaders will begin to fall from their positions. You, you can't mm-hmm. continue to live selfishly at the top and you, you're eating all of the best of the meats and you're not sacrificing for the welfare of those under your care and stay where you're at. So it seems to be there's a, there's quite a shift. It's an opportunity for many of these people who want to lead well, who want to care for others. If you start taking responsibility for the people underneath your care, then very often what happens is increased responsibility, increased authority. Yeah, and I think that there's some overlap in what appears to be uh, true manliness with this just kind of uh, machismo stuff that's nonsense. And so because it looks the same to people, they want to reject it all. But the idea of sacrifice, I do think, is is pivotal. And we've talked about the World War II generation, greatest generation, and we couldn't do that today. Mm -hmm. We couldn't fight a war today if we had to the way that those men did and that they went and they died for a cause. And I don't know that we've got that uh, very widely in our culture among men. Uh, and it's, it's by design. I think we've been kind of coached out of it by the culture that that's bad, that's misogynistic, and uh, there's really not that much difference, if any at all, between men and women. And it goes right back to, to reality. And God made the world the way that it is, and that world includes men who are designed to be manly and women who are designed to be like women. And there's a difference. But it's almost like that's heresy today to talk like that. Well, to talk about any difference between men and women is is heresy by secular terms. I mean, we, we can't even say that a female is a biological yeah. fact any longer. We pretend that a woman is a fabrication and a fantasy, as I said in today's mm-hmm. convocation. We, are, we insult women by suggesting that they're nothing but leprechauns and unicorns. They're make-believe. Mm. And if a man wants to come along and pretend that he's a woman, then that makes him so. This is neo-gnosticism, quite frankly. It's the denial of science, but it's the denial of the created order. It's the mm-hmm. denial of the body. It's the devaluing of the physical 
to the extent that you can butcher it, mm. you can carve it, you can manipulate it, you can treat it like plastic because it doesn't matter. And that is, well, you, I'm preaching to the choir right now, but that is a sin that's as old as at least 2,000 years, if not as old as time, to deny God's created order and claim that you shall be as God. Mm. And you don't need God to define what's good or evil anymore. You don't even need God to tell you what's male or female any longer. You can decide. You declare yourselves to be as God. Isn't that the original sin? And that's what we suffer in today's culture. To the extent where everything that's wrong with our culture today can be defined in two words, toxic masculinity. Mm. Mm. Yeah, the, um, the confusion over male and female signals that there is an attempt to destroy the image of God on earth. And um, this came out recently as I gathered up our family for dinner. Uh, my wife, Heather, we have seven children, you know, 12 down, boys and girls. And I was, I was quite shaken. Show? Is this a Catholic show? <laughs> I told you, I got a buddy that still dings me on Facebook every now and then. Are you sure you're not Catholic? Um, but we were assembled this week after the horrific events in Kabul, Afghanistan, mm -hmm. where people will know us are hearing this uh, probably Tuesday um, of Marines, soldiers, military, American military who gave their lives. I was thinking of the courage of those men, you know, that they would stand there and check knowing what's coming. I mean, they were ready. They knew that ISIS-K was going to do something. They, they know they're in the vulnerable spot if you're there checking, you know, these people that are walking through the gate. And I thought the, the wonderful scenes of men holding babies, you know, mm. with guns at the same time, these soldiers that are having to protect life. And then as we're talking about at our table, we're talking about also imagine the women and, and the disgrace that our modern, you know, secular culture has done to women. There, there are women that have sacrificed their lives for the welfare of these men that went and died. These men that died, like gave birth to them, bodies broken for them, cared for them, nursed them, fed them, taught them, and then had the courage to send them to fight our enemies and to do good. And now these women are going without. They're going without their sons, uh, some of them going out without their husbands. And they're courageous. And it's this vision of this Proverbs 31 woman, you know, she laughs at the time to come. She laughs at the future. Why? Because she's hoping in God. So you see the image of God expressing itself in males and in females. And that's something that needs to be recovered and held up as honorable and beautiful and true and Christian. Mm -hmm. And the disgrace that we've done to it. You can't even, you, people can't notice the beauty even through the horror of something that happened, like what happened in uh, Kabul. So we, we've gathered up the family and preparing our children for that and um, showing the men who did this wonderful sacrifice and sadly for all the reasons that it didn't need to happen the way that it happened and preparing another generation that's actually going to have the courage to go and live for Christ and be courageous, whether they be male or female in the days to come. And we talk a lot about uh, Genesis 1-1. Uh, I think it's the most important verse in the Bible today. People just forget. We assume but we don't stop and think deeply about the fact, okay, this really is God's show. God created this world by himself, for himself. We are here for him. And he gets to set the rules. He gets to set the definitions. And so he's created male. He's created female. The measure of a male is not a female. The measure of a female is not a male. Uh, he's created mountains. He's created valleys. All of this belongs to him. And then all of the different spheres of life are created by him. We, we've talked about authority and where authority comes from. Well, there's, there's no absolute authority on earth. No human authority has absolute or inherent authority. It's all delegated authority mm -hmm. by Jesus Christ who said, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. 
So the individual has authority over his or her life, but not authority to do whatever they want to do. They've got authority to do what the God who gave them that life tells them is right, that they can and should do. So for someone to say, I'm a man, I was born a man, but I'm going to become a woman. I have that right, my body, my choice. We just have to say, no, you're wrong. You're going against the most fundamental reality in the world, and that is that you're a creature made in the image of your creator. And the same thing happens with families, dads or husbands that say, well, I'm the boss, I can do whatever. No, you can't. Elders and churches, we're the elders, you got to obey us, so you buy this kind of soft drink, not that kind. No. Governors, you know, you got to wear masks, you got to get poked. Not, no. You, you don't have the authority to do that. You know, um, in both of these books, uh, Not a Daycare as well as the sequel, Grow Up, I cover what I called whateverism. Uh, the nihilism of our time. How many times have you heard a millennial or a Gen Zer say, whatever? Yeah. Whatever. No, 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 not whatever. That's there, what you say when you have no clue how to answer an argument that just well, puts you in a corner. Well, it's a vacuous worldview by definition. Mm-hmm. It's vacuous. It's a vacuum that will suck something into it. Vacuums are always filled. And if we, if we get rid of all the laws of God, I quoted G.K. Chesterton in the earlier um, talk today in, in your convocation. Chesterton said, if you get rid of the big laws of God, you don't get liberty. You're going to get lots of little laws that are sucked in to fill that vacuum. And we see that in reality today. We can't live by the simple laws that God has given us. Ten, Jesus summarizes them in two. We refuse to live by a handful of laws or two handful of laws. And what do we get? We get reams of craziness from Washington, D.C., where they're telling us how to do everything from mm-hmm. how to use the bathroom to what pronouns mm. to use, etc. This is an example of uh, the whateverism, the moral nihilism, the nothingism of our culture that's the result of us dethroning God and acting like it doesn't matter anymore. It does matter. There will always be someone on the throne, and it will either be God or it will be you or me, and I don't want you on the throne. It's not a, it's not a good place to be, and you don't want me on the throne. Mm. History shows us time and time again that when the throne has been filled by man, Pol Pot, Mao, Robespierre, Chavez, Mussolini, Hitler, it didn't end well. Only when Christ is on the throne are we truly free. Mm. Freedom, defined biblically, has fences around it. In fact, I've used this analogy in a talk I give back home in Oklahoma because people get it there. I don't know whether you'll get it here in Florida. But uh, um, when I drive from Bartlesville to the Tulsa airport, I go through very large ranches. On the left and the right of me, there are ranches 10,000, 20,000 acres large. And there are cattle roaming those ranches, those fields, freely. But guess what? There's a fence around all of those ranches. Why? Because if there wasn't, the cattle would be out in the road and they would be getting killed. You can't have freedom to roam your field unless somebody puts a fence up around Mm -hmm. it. And that somebody has to know a little bit more than the cow. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that principle of fences and freedom plays well for our own lives. If we honor the fences of God, we'll have maximum freedom as right. the result of that. Yeah. We saw that when we moved here to Cape Coral years ago, we had uh, two little kids and soon had a third. And as they got older and were playing, we lived on a uh, street. It was pretty busy. And so we had them play in the backyard, but we didn't have a fence. It was mm-hmm. just all vacant land behind us. And they would hang right by the house. They, they were afraid. They were afraid until there we put a fence up. Then they played in the whole yard. Exactly. They loved it. Yeah. yeah. I, I had Labradors, retrievers, when I, and I, in, um, 
in my first book that you don't have there. It's, it's, uh, I tell the story about uh, a lesson of blue. We had a black Labrador that we named Blue. Now, the reason for that is because I thought Lobo's 1972 song, Me and You and a Dog Named Boo, <laughs> Traveling and Living Off the Land, Me and You and a Dog Named Boo, How I Love Being a Free Man. I thought Lobo was saying Blue, not Boo, and therefore I named my black dog Blue. It's a confusing story. has nothing to do with anything I just, I'm going to say right now. Right. But that's why we had the dog. But there's the lesson of Blue. And I learned something watching my Labradors. If you love dogs, you love watching your dog be free. There's nothing better than your Labrador's smiling face as she's running across the field just enjoying life. But I had to teach her who was the boss. She's not. I am. And if I didn't teach her the rules to be obedient to her master, I had to either put her on a leash or on a chain or cage her in the backyard in a small pen. But as soon as she learned her boundaries from her master, she could have the world as her oyster. That is when Blue really became free, is when she learned the paradox of discipline and freedom. Hmm. Yeah, and if some, somebody, some stranger, some neighborhood uh, individual came walking by and started telling uh, Blue what to do, like, hey, you need to stop. Back. You know, I know that your owner told you you could stop there, but I think you need to stop here. Mm-hmm. What would be good for Blue to do is bite to them. transgress. <laughs> exactly. Bite them. Tell them, first of all, get off my owner's yard. Um, and, and Christians need to learn to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, and this is going to be challenging because uh, here, first of all, Christians are law abiding citizens, just laws. Uh, you're not going to find any people that are better at honoring authority, honoring civil authority and uh, acknowledging civil laws and giving them praise accordingly as ministers of Christ. But if you start to come and offer arbitrary standards, then it is the Christian's duty to say, I'm not going to keep your arbitrary standard. To growl. Uh, to growl and, yeah. and say, I'm not going to do that. And recently um, from Wretched, who's the guy Wretched? Todd Friel. Todd Friel. You know, he came out and we were talking about the law of the lesser magistrate. And he said, you know, if the government told me to put pinwheels on my head, I'd put pinwheels on my head. Well, you know, no offense to Todd. Sorry, brother. But Go ahead and offend him. He deserves a little bit of offense here. No, I, I mean, you must be outside of your mind. You're not acknowledging the lordship of Christ. Jesus Christ is king. So even for your children, I know, again, Christians can make people nervous. If they come and they say, use the pronouns, you say, I'm not going to use my pronouns. I'm going to teach my children how to not use the pronouns. And we have no problem blaspheming your God. We're not going to do this in arrogance. We're saying you're, you're on this route. We're not going to be on this route. And starting to really find the ways that we've already been susceptible to that in American society. Now, if you're building your own house, you know, the government mandates how far apart the screws are to be in your drywall. And so if you had your son, it'd be a good idea. Just go another half inch and just put it in there and just look at him and say, you know what, that, that's all right. That'll do. You know, we'll see if they catch us on it. But they need, we need to be trained again, just a reminder that Jesus Christ is king. And there is such a thing as lawful laws. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those things where, going back to Chesterton's quote, uh, the, the Ten Commandments, I mean, they define for us what's right and wrong. And in, we're in a day when everybody has morality and all this whole idea of justice, you know, and you're not loving me or you're not being just if you don't do X, Y, Z. And because God's people have not been well taught on the law and the gospel, they're easily played. They're easily moved off path. And so somebody says, you offended me when you didn't or when you did, and it has nothing to do with what God requires. The default mode seems to be on the part of Christians is, oh, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. I don't want to do that. Help me to make it up to you. When it's crazy, you're not serving people well when you do that. 
Machen made the statement at the beginning of the 20th century that whenever there's a low view of God's law, there will always be legalism. Mm-hmm. That a high view of God's law saves us from legalism. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I gave my share of commencement addresses when I was a university president. Um, I joked with you earlier that I was guaranteed a standing ovation <laughs> because I, was, I would always uh, preface my comments by saying, this will be five minutes max. Right. <laughs> we almost bet on it. Calm, calm down, calm down. But uh, one of the commencement addresses that I gave repeatedly, meaning more than once, is um, degree, I titled it A Degree in Opinions. <laughs> and I said, I've never once, since being a college president, handed out a a degree, excuse me, a degree in opinions. I'm not going to stand up here in my funny cap and gown with you out there in the audience and yours and have you march up here toward the podium after I'm done talking and walk across the stage and have me reach over and hand you your diploma and whisper in your ear, congratulations, you majored in opinions. This would be crazy. It would be absurd. You came here to learn something. You came here because truth is an objective reality. It's not about your opinion. It's not about your feelings. Yes, the facts do trump your feelings. And if that's not the case, then why did you waste your money coming here? Mm. I'm not going to hand you a diploma in opinions because opinions are dangerous. Pol Pot had an opinion. Mao had an opinion. Robespierre, Chavez, Mussolini, Hitler, all the despots of history had opinions, and it didn't end well. But Jesus said, the truth shall set you free. So you come here to learn more about that, not to elevate your opinion and have me congratulate you for having one, because that will end in bondage either to someone else, a despot or a tyrant, or bondage to your own sin mm. and dysfunction. Yeah. Let's shift gears for a moment. Everett, I mean, you've uh, been in a position to kind of survey the land uh, from your vantage point of serving as a university president and then in the last few years beyond that. What do you see going on in, in culture? And then let's just narrow it down to the evangelical movement in the United States. I mean, what, what are you observing and uh, what concerns do you have? What are, what are things that you can kind of put your finger on that uh, you're concerned about? The ivory tower is lost. Uh, and I, I think I have the right, if not the responsibility, to say that. Uh, this is my industry. This has been my life. This has been my career. And if no one else has the responsibility to critique that, I think I do and I will. The ivory tower, by and large, is crumbling. Mm-hmm. And that's because of the loss of any concept of objective truth. The idea of objective truth is now being called nothing but the product of white privilege. We actually have professors at fairly renowned institutions saying that two plus two equals four is a statement of white privilege. Mm -hmm. This is just asinine. This is crazy. Do you want somebody designing a bridge that thinks two plus two is five? Do you want somebody designing an airplane that thinks two plus two is seven? The answer is no, because the bridge won't hold and the plane won't fly. And the people making these absurd claims know that. They're not going to get in that airplane that's designed by somebody who can't count. This is the dangerous nature of postmodern education, where we don't believe anything other than feelings trumping our facts. Hmm. And the Christian Academy isn't much different any longer. And this is where I'm going to make some people nervous. But I was part of the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. And the day after Obergefell, the day after the Supreme Court made the decision to make gay marriage the law of the land, 
the president of the CCCU, the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, called me as well as several other Christian college presidents because we all, all of us received a letter from the president of the CCCU saying that we need to meet to have a conversation as to what to do about gay marriage on our campuses. My response to the president of the CCCU was, conversation about what? Where does it say in the Bible we're supposed to sit around and have a conversation about sodomy? The last I knew, the Bible was pretty clear about this, and we're supposed to condemn it and confess it, not talk about it. And I said, if you don't make a decision on this issue, and if you don't say this organization stands firmly on a biblical worldview, a biblical ethic of sexuality and marriage, then I'm out. I'm not going to be part of this organization. I was told, I was told that, and this is close to a direct quote, almost verbatim, Everett, the CCCU is a big umbrella with multiple denominations therein, Baptist schools, Free Methodist schools, Nazarene schools, Assembly of God schools, non-denominational schools. As we have disagreements and dialogue about things such as methods of baptism, a woman's role at the pulpit, and creation timeframes, we should likewise have a conversation about this. My response was, Shirley, you just conflated a disagreement over how you get baptized with a volitional act of sodomy. I will never concede this debate. If that's where we are in the Christian academy, we're in trouble. Richard Weaver told us in 1948 that ideas have consequences. What was the point of that book? Ideas have consequences. (laughs) That's it. You don't need to read the book. (laughs) Bad ideas will breed bad church, bad culture, and bad colleges, and bad kids. And we're reaping the consequences of these terrible ideas, even within the Christian colleges and universities. I talked to someone who's uh, leading an institution, support of that organization, very, very discouraged, not sure that they could even stay in here in the last few months. And it's it's sad to me, knowing some of the people involved in it and who started it and, and what the intentions were, at least stated, at the outset. And as we were putting together the Institute of Public Theology, uh, it, I think we may have thought for like five seconds about whether or not to seek accreditation. And we decided, no, we know what we want to do. We know the men that we want to enlist to help us do it. And we don't want to be bothered and weighted down with trying to satisfy people that aren't on the same wavelength with us. And I've been encouraged by you in some of our conversations. You've said, you know, good. You know, you, you've actually encouraged the fact that we're not pursuing accreditation. That doesn't, that sounds very, very uh, counterintuitive to mm-hmm. us today in America, but it fits in with what you just said. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, just in terms of what we're trying to do in the IOPT without pursuing accreditation. Well, I actually, I could bore you all silly, and I'll, I'll discipline myself uh, to try not to do so. But I did my doctoral work on this issue, the definition of Christian education. And part of it was uh, doing a fairly thorough explanation of accreditation and what it is. There was a time when accreditation basically called upon you to live up to your own word. That if you said, this is our mission statement, these are our goals, you needed to provide proof to the accrediting body that you were being true to your mission statement, to your goals, that there was truth in advertising. And if Hmm. you could prove that there was truth in advertising, good deal. You got your stamp of approval. I don't have any problem with that. Mm -hmm. But I do have a problem with somebody changing or moving the target. Yeah. 
if now you're not telling me the truth, you're saying that you're evangelical Christian, but you're, you're really not teaching evangelical Christianity. You say that you're an evangelical Christian college, but yet you're not saying that gay marriage is unbiblical or you're saying other things that are completely antithetical to biblical morality or a biblical ethos, then I have difficulty with that. You you didn't tell me the truth. I bought a product that isn't real. Now, there was a time not that long ago where the accrediting body would have agreed with what I just said. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, everything is so PC and everything is so woke and affirming and everything is so driven by uh, the false tolerance of a very intolerant culture, you can't assume that stamp of approval really means anything any longer. I would rather get an education from you because you're telling me the truth and I know exactly what I'm getting than get one that's compromised but yet has a stamp of approval on it that proves nothing other than you checked the boxes on the PC culture mm-hmm. and that's why that stamp is there. Yeah, I know that there's so many people that are um, looking for where to go in this time. We're watching everything shift. I've heard a number of conversations with men saying, you know, who are we to trust? And one of the reasons we started the Institute, again, it's not, it's not a university. It's not really designed for that college, that classical Christian college field. It's for the training of ministers would map onto a man getting a master's of divinity um, and being trained for the ministry. But even for my own kids, I ask this question, you know, I'm watching the landscape you see this crazy social justice stuff everywhere. You see people infected by secularism. Um, you've had a long time thinking about this in the Christian college realm. Where would you point folks to right now? Is, are there pockets of faithfulness that you would say, well, this would be a source you could consider as you're looking at uh, universities? Uh, we've talked about that, and uh, my list is fairly short right now. Um, and, and again, for me, it's truth in advertising. I might send my kid to a college that I disagree with on some things if they're telling me the truth about who they are. Um, so I'm not saying that these co- every one of these colleges I'm going to mention right now, I agree with 100%, but I do believe they're telling me the truth. Uh, college of the Ozarks, it's nicknamed Hard Work U. It's uh, <laughs> south of Branson, Missouri. They tell you the truth. That One of their mission uh, goals is patriotism. They are serious about it. They're very independent. They're very conservative. Um, they haven't traditionally been part of the CCCU, so their history wasn't within that basket of Christian colleges and universities. But I trust them. I know who they are. I know what I'm getting. So I would consider College of the Ozarks. Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan, very conservative institution politically, economically. Not so much in terms of social values and Christian values historically, but as you and I were talking, they're actually being drawn toward Christian Um, values and Christian identity rather than moving away from them because they've attracted a lot of Christians, a lot of Christian parents, a lot of Christian donors, and a lot of Christian faculty because of their commitment to being independent, truly, classically liberal, meaning they're pursuing a liberal arts education because they believe in liberty within the boundaries of self-evident truths that are endowed to us by our creator, in other words, natural law. So I trust Hillsdale. And then a third college that I think is just hitting out of the park right now is New St. Andrews up in Moscow, Idaho. They're doing it right. Just go look at their commercial campaign and you'll want to send your kids there. So, Very good. Yeah, well, this has been a wonderful conversation. We're grateful for you and what you're doing, uh, even in your post 
presidential uh, time. We're grateful that you continue to write and you continue to speak and so glad for your friendship here and the way you've been willing to counsel us and guide us and help us as we bounce questions off of you about uh, how to move forward with the Institute of Public Theology. Uh, you've served us so well already and uh, we're just very gra- glad that you came to be with us this weekend. Well, thank you. Honored to be here. Thanks so much for listening to The Sword and the Trout today. We hope you've been encouraged by this podcast. Dr. Everett Piper, Not a Daycare and Grow Up. You can grab both of those books. The Institute of Public Theology is in full swing and uh, applications are still open so you can apply. Uh, we have an in-person course coming up in January with Dr. Vody Bakum. He'll be teaching on cultural apologetics and that will be right alongside our Founders Conference down here in January. So go ahead to the Institute of publictheology.org apply to the institute we would love to see you join we have a great group of men who have Mm -hmm. come and participated in the first week of classes down here it's been remarkable times together Mm -hmm. of eating and drinking and celebrating god's goodness and then studying under your uh, pastor in the public square pastoral theology from you tom has been glorious so we would love to have you join us at the institute let me mention also that we have going on right now an incredible opportunity. There's a donor who has stepped forward and said that he is willing to match any gifts that are given to IOPT through the end of the year. And so if you've thought about investing in this work, if you can do so, we would love to talk to you about that. Or you can give online at Institute of Public Theology. And just know that all the gifts that you give at this season will be multiplied. They'll be doubled to help us move forward and continuing to build out this institute for God's glory. <laughs>